This is Bucket Talk, a weekly podcast for people who work in the trades and construction that aren't just trying to survive, but have the ambition and desire to thrive. The opportunity in the trades and construction is absolutely ridiculous right now. So if you're hungry, it's time to eat. We discuss what it takes to rise from the bottom to the top with people who are well on their way and roll up their sleeves every single day. This is Jeremy and Eric here with Bucket Talk, powered by Brunt. This week's episode, we got Captain Marciano from the Discovery Channel show, Wicked Tuna. But before we jump in, Eric, what's been going on? All right. I'm super, super excited. Looking into a bunch of new stuff to get involved in and uh, super excited to announce. We just actually this past weekend had our first participation in the PBR, also known as the Professional Bull Riding Association. We've got killer writers uh cody teal and eli vassbinder are professionals are rocking their brunt patches on their vest uh trying to stay on the bulls for eight seconds and so we're dipping our toe testing it out but so far it looks like something pretty exciting and hopefully gonna be able to catch one of these uh in person see where it takes us what about you uh, so i uh, remember how i said i had two employees that were leaving well, now I have to do all the work. I, I am I am out of work shape. Let me tell you, it's hysterical. I I didn't catch the uh, the rodeo on uh, on Sunday, but I was out there mucking stalls by myself and and doing all the grunt work. But it feels good to be back into the barn and and uh, doing some stuff. So be happy about that. Awesome, awesome. Let's jump in. We are here with Captain Dave Marciano, who is better known for his role on the Wicked Tuna National Geographic show. Welcome. Welcome. Thanks for having me, man. No problem. So I wanted to uh, get a background on commercial fishing and what better way to to look locally at our Massachusetts fishing community and and see if we could get a a better insight on how good of an industry commercial fishing is and... uh, if it's something that somebody should get into or, or not. And I wanted to uh, kind of get a little background of who you are, where you live. I don't need the street address, but uh, yep. where you live and, and how you got here today. Sure. Well, let's say, okay, as far as where I live, you know, I, I live in Beverly, Mass., which is near Gloucester. I keep both boats in Gloucester. It's 15-minute ride down the highway. It's, I grew up in this town, Beverly, and, you know, Gloucester is a great place. Gloucester has a over 400-year history of fishing. It's the oldest fishing seaport in the country, second only to New Bedford. Yep. So, you know, going back to the days of whaling, right? So yeah, um, yeah. that's where, if you're going to have a boat, you know, that's where all the infrastructure is, right? You have the fish buyers. You have the ice companies, you have the fuel companies. If you doing anything at all on the boats, as far as maintenance needs, you know, everything you need to go fishing for a living exists in Gloucester. So that's why I base the boats there. And then I simply live in the town that I grew up in. How, how'd you get into commercial fishing? What, what was your background? Your, your right, family right. doing okay, it? Or? No, my, my dad sold insurance for a living. Uh, nobody in my family was a fisherman before me. I just had a passion for fishing that started when I was a you know young kid. My parents couldn't keep me away from the water, and it started 
just fishing, you know, nothing fancy with barbers and minnows for bass and pan fish and everything else and trout. And, you know, that passion just kept growing. I had my first job on a boat when I was about 12 years old. It was the local harbor boat, you know, a party boat where it took out 30 or 40 people out in the harbor for four-hour trips. You know, when I started out scrubbing bait cups and worked my way up to where I am today, you know, I, I worked through that industry, you know, the for hire industry, pretty much all through high school and a couple of years afterwards. You know, and then life happens and I got married. And that's about the time I got into the commercial end of things. Primarily gill netting was my favorite fishery to participate in. And I did that for a lot of years. And then again, worked my way up. Eventually, somebody gave me the keys to their boat. And I ran other boats for, you know, five years or so and saved up enough money to buy my own rig. Oh, nice. Right. So I bought my first commercial boat, the Angelica Joseph. Yeah. I bought in 1995. We were incorporated is when I started my business, Angelica Fisheries. And I've owned, that's my corporate logo, Angelica Fisheries, Inc. And, you know, I incorporated for all the business reasons you incorporate, taxes, liabilities, et cetera, et cetera. And I've owned five boats under that corporate name. Wow. The Hard Merchandise and Falcon are the ones that people on the show are familiar with. Correct. How'd you get into tuna fishing? I mean, you went from what ground fishing, which is, you know, draggers and trawlers to now, now on those commercial boats, look as commercial fishermen in new England, different seasons mean different species, right? Commercial fishermen are opportunists. We're not in it for the sport. We're not in it for the thrill, although it is very thrilling occupation, Maybe that's part of the adrenaline rush that keeps you into it is always the big score, the search for the big score. But, you know, that became part of the year. You know what I mean? A few months a year, if tuna fishing was good, and if we say good, if it was lucrative, if we could make some money doing it, we would do it. And I've always felt that the key to successful tuna fishing isn't so much, you know, how much you catch for the overall year. It's knowing when to stop when it no longer becomes profitable. Because real fast, the way expenses are, you can chew up a month's worth of profit not catching. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, that's that's an actual good point. For us, for me anyway, I'm an auto mechanic. I spend, you know, a lot of the times fixing cars and doing repairs. That's my daily business. But you know, we do have snow plowing in the wintertime. And for me, it's an, another opportunity to take, you know, a bigger check and make a more lucrative living that way. So it, for me, it's it's the thrill of snow, getting that big paycheck, the big snowstorm. But yeah, it's hit or miss. Yeah. So uh, what's a day in the life of a captain? What makes you wake up every morning? Take us through a normal day. Well, you know, look, I mean, one thing is as much as we do it, and although I have days when, you know, I don't want to be at work, just like everybody else, for the most part, I love what I do for a living. And even when, you know, the alarm clock goes off at 1.30 a.m., you know, we roll out of bed, 
And my biggest thrill is, you know, I always feel like I'm late because the way we operate, if you're not out on the fishing grounds, you know, by sunrise, you've already missed the best opportunity of the day. Yeah. You know, I wake up at 1.30 a.m. some mornings, you know, between 1 and 3 is my average time to get up and head down the boat. Until we get out to the fishing grounds, as far as I'm concerned, it's rush hour. (laughs) I always ask the people that I I interview, would they want their kids to join the trades? You know, I I spend a little bit of time with my daughter. My son's a little too young, but, you know, I, I bring her in the garage. She helps me change oil and 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 do a few things but you know for me it's building a skill it's building a, a base that that she can you know, work from whether whether it's being a better consumer later on or whether it's actually entering the trades fully and uh, i know you have a family and it seems that you're supportive of the trades but why would you uh, allow your kids to go on the trade what do you see in the trades that you might want for your children to understand well look the fishing industry is a tough situation Right. It's not that there's lack of fish anymore. There's plenty of fish. The government overregulation has literally destroyed an industry here, at least in New England. You know, we implemented sectors in New England about a decade ago, and that was a quota system. We have to buy the quota. And, you know, basically it put the industry in the situation where, you know, get big or get the F out. If you don't have the ability to buy a million dollars worth of quota and have it sit on the shelf for a few years, you can't really play the game anymore. Because if you don't have the quota up front, you can't leave the dock to go fishing. And the way the regulations are, it's kind of sectors in New England aren't the strict. Some other quota management schemes work a little better because at least once you have a hard quota, you have access to the resource. In New England, we kind of have a hybrid system where you have to buy the quota up front and you don't get to access the resource in the areas where the fish are most abundant during the times of the year that the fish are most abundant. Those closed areas are part of the broken system that we had in place before. So the whole thing is completely broken. And literally in that decade, we've lost 90% of the commercial fishing fleet in New England. We went from about 1,700 active commercial fishing boats in the ground fish fishery to down to about 80 and and about 7,000 jobs. So it's not because of lack of fish. A lot of the fish are listed as far as health of the resource goes. Gulf of Maine haddock, Arcadian redfish are just a couple examples of many that, you know, these species have been fully rebuilt since 2002 and 2006. And literally this day and age, we don't catch the quotas for the year because there's basically not enough fishermen to catch what the government says is available out there. So we leave quota on the table. The system has been completely turned upside down. Wow. You know, and when I spent my time in the Coast Guard, it was interesting because we did northern fisheries tours. I was based out of Boston. And, yeah. uh, so, and so you probably interacted with guys <laughs> like me. So most of our stuff was done out of New Bedford, but you're right. It was interesting because there are closed groups and open groups. And, you know, if you're fishing a closed group that, 
you know, you were in violation and, right, um, right. you know, a lot of times it was about education, but you get on and do fish counts. And, and, and so the commercial fishing industry is heavy regulated. And, you know, I don't know too much about it. And that's why I'm asking your insight is that trying to look at it from a standpoint, do you think that there's going to be a resurgence? Do you think that? No, you know, no, no. no. Well, look, I was very active in the management process, you know, in the, the fisheries management councils for several decades. I feel like it was a waste of my life because at the time I did have faith in due process. Yeah. And, you know, that's why I've always supported the Coast Guard because the Coast Guard had representation in all the fisheries management process. You know, and I always understood the truth was, is, you know, that was never the Coast Guard's mission to be fisheries enforcement officers. But given the way the system worked, you guys wound up you know, because early on we were like, you're making all these laws and you got absolutely no one out there enforcing them. Yeah. Yeah. You're just making the crooks rich. Yeah. Right. Because those of us playing by the rules were playing by the rules and then nobody was enforcing anything. So if you were willing to be dishonest, you made a killing. And if you were one of the honest fishermen, you know, this is going way, way back. Right. Oh, I've so, heard the, I've heard the it, stories. It's actually pretty interesting that, you know, there's been guys that, and it was in the lobster, lobster fishing, whether you scrubbed lobsters or were catching undersides lobsters. A lot of the times it was handled in New Bedford or Gloucester or Maine, or it was never handled by the Coast Guard. If another fisherman found out what you were doing, it was, it was way worse than what the government was going to do for you. Exactly. As archaic as that was, I think it was a good system. (laughs) But, but, you know, because the thing is, it was played fair in those days. Yeah. You know what I mean? Everybody played fair for that reason. And then you enter this, you know, time of change. And literally, you know, some of us stood back and we watched the crooks get rich. Mm. And we stopped short of being rats. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, the way things were, it wasn't the old days anymore. And we couldn't intervene the way we would have liked to. Yeah. So so it was frustrating to watch us giving up fish. And watching the crooks just break it in, right? Well, and that that sucks because, you know, my wife is in the hardwood flooring industry. And what they do is is a sustainable forest now. And sustainable yep. forests are, are awesome because people think that you cut down a tree, you're killing a tree. And that's not true. There's a huge system behind it. For every tree that's cut down, there's three more trees planted. Exactly. So you're looking at it from a conservation standpoint. And a lot of people that are, you know, in fisheries or in hunting or in, you know, wood products or, or what have you, are actually your best advocates for the resource that they're, I wouldn't say depleting, but taking from. That's their livelihood. That's what you want to pass on to your children is an abundant fishing ground. So I, I 100% wholeheartedly you know, agree with you in the fact that you know, being able to police your own and, and not taking more than what you should is has always been uh, the way New England works. But I guess things have gotten a little different recently. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> So, uh, you know, I was going to ask you about unspoken trends, but I think you really covered that. Tell me about something cool that you've been doing recently. Anything that you've been excited about? The show, without a doubt, right, has opened doors for me that never in a million years did I ever see myself walking through. You know, know, there, there was a part of me that, in a small part of me, like I was content when I was just Dave the fisherman, right? 
and we made a living and it was a tough living, but uh, you know, again, I enjoyed my job and now my life has changed so much because, you know, again, and, and I did this for one simple reason, right? As a commercial fisherman, I'm an opportunist, just like I've always been. I saw an opportunity to make a few bucks when it all started and they were doing interviews and they asked me if I wanted to participate. The first words out of my, out of my mouth was, is there a check involved, right? <laughs> that's the only thing I was interested in. That's the only reason I ever walked down this road. But a lot of interesting things go along like with that. Like this notoriety, it's all pretty good. But, you know, there's times where sometimes it's overwhelming because, you know, it's not like I was a struggling actor and, you know, it's like, you know, okay, get ready because someday I'm going to make it. And, you know what I mean? There's, there's an overwhelming part of that considering where I came from as a commercial fisherman. It's quite an anonymous way to make a living. Yeah. But it has been one hell of a wild ride. You know, I will say that. It's been an opportunity of a lifetime for me and my kids. And it's been a great way. You know, I mentioned the regulations and how it's changed the face of the industry. And, you know, it's given me an opportunity to figure out how to continue, you know, owning my boats and surviving and even thriving in the fishing industry. And, and yes, it's different than before. In the past, you know, I made a majority of my income gill netting and long lining and dragging. Yeah. Uh, and charters, you know, to, as those laws were changing, you know, we got our captain's license because we have to have our mariner's credential to carry passages for hire. As I'm sure you're well aware as a Coast Guardsman. <laughs> yeah. Right? And like, so we decided to go down that road. And, you know, for a few months a year, because of regulations, we couldn't make money doing something else. We'd do a few charters in the summertime. But now, because of the show, I mean, what a great opportunity to build a charter business. I mean, you think about it. My charter boats now, quote, unquote, are on TV, you know, 27 weeks a year because of Wicked Tuna, right? Yeah. What what other charter boat operator wouldn't like that opportunity to build business? And then, you know, you think about it, what a unique opportunity when it comes to a TV show. What other TV shows out there can you watch? And then you can go on the website and I'm going to be self-promoting here for a moment. AngelicaFisheries.com is our website. And you can go on there and see about come doing a fishing trip with us. But what other show can you have a favorite character and then pick up the phone and call him up and go hang out for the day? <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, that's, that's amazing. You know, it's things like that, that, you know, becoming innovative in your own industry is the biggest thing. I mean, for me... I came to a crossroads as a mechanic that, you know, I wonder at what point we're going to change from, you know, operating as a small business to operating as a, you know, Ford or or Chevy or even these electric vehicles that everything's changing and you have to keep up. The way it was always done is obsolete. You always have to be forward thinking. And that's awesome that you're able to not only create a living for yourself and a good living, but now you're creating a living for your family. It's amazing. Yes. No, it's been, it's been a, a fantastic opportunity. And again, you know, I'll be the first to admit we're not better than other guys. Cause I noticed there's, there's a, a thousand other commercial fishermen out here in new England who could have benefited from the same opportunity I've had 
And, you know, my only regrets are I couldn't bring more of those guys who needed it just as bad as I do along for the ride with me. But unfortunately, that's not how, you know, the system works. So I was very fortunate. I was very lucky. It doesn't make me better than anybody else. But I saw our opportunity. And, you know, I like to say a lot. I've said it before. You know, I'm going to ride this wave till it crashes on the beach, right? <laughs> so I wanted to get into a little bit of the tools of your trade. And, and for most people, they think when they think of fishing, like I said, bobbers and freshwater rods or whatever. But if I wanted to be a commercial fisherman, what kind of gear do I need to show up with? Well, you're going to need, you know, simple, simple things. You're going to need uh, a set of boots and a set of oil skins to keep yourself dry. You know, the jacket and pants and a set of deck boots. If you're handy with a knife, that's also helpful. You know, if you can cut fish and all that can be learned. But, you know, the way it works on commercial boats, especially when you're starting out, if people do have that desire, is... You know, the the more useful you are, the more you will be paid. Because, you know, the the way it works in commercial boats, you're working for a share of the catch or a crew share, it's called. And, you know, guys who can do three times the work as you are going to get paid more. Now, when you can do the equal amount of work, you'll be entitled to the equal amount of pay. Yeah. Right. So that's the way it works. And that's the way it's always worked. And, you know, one thing about the commercial fishing industry is there's only one way to learn how to do it. And anybody can do it. All you got to do is have the desire. You got to get on a boat and get some experience. And that's how you learn to do it. You can't learn it from a book. You know, there isn't uh, a school to go to. Although, you know, there is extreme fishing in Gloucester is actually in the business of teaching guys. Uh, It's kind of a little thing that's sprouted up you know, from some unemployed fishermen, you know, they're in the business now of teaching new people, you know, the tricks of the trade and how to bend nuts and stuff, which gives you an edge over other candidates. If you're asking around looking for work, you know, if you can say you can mend, if you can say you can cut fish, well, that's going to make you more attractive to an employer than somebody they have to break in from scratch. What was crazy, I, I got on a scallop boat a long time ago. Uh, we were doing a boarding, and it was interesting because those guys can shuck scallops so fast and without cutting themselves, and it's it's amazing. It, I mean, the absolute skill and precision, it's, it's yeah. interesting. Yeah, and anybody can learn it, you know what I mean? You just yeah. have the desire to put the time in. And, <laughs> you know, at first, too, is... You know, it sucks, right? It's going to be long hours for not much pay. And the, the faster you learn, the faster you move up the scale. Okay. Right? So, and, and if you're interested, the next question is, how do I get into it? Yeah. And it's the same way we all started. You got to get down the dock and show up and ask for work. And they're probably going to say no the first time you go back. And they'll probably say no the 10th time you go back. But around about the 10th time you go back and work, that's going to tell the owners that this guy's serious. And if I give him a shot, him or her, if I give him a shot, they might actually try. You know what I mean? By showing up, because a lot of times getting people to show up is the hottest part of the battle for a boat owner. 
So if you continuously show up, even when you're told we don't need you today, they know you're telling that owner the day he says, I need you, you're going to be there. No, I mean, that's actually an amazing test. It's simple and it's something that, you know, a lot of people can't pass nowadays. And exactly. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So. I, I would say Wicked Tuna is probably the thing that changed your career, but I'm giving you a chance to say otherwise if that's not true. I mean, no, look, I'll, I'll admit, Wicked Tuna, through that opportunity, has changed my career. Yeah. And, you know, not only am I running the boats and the boats are thriving, and that's great, we do get compensated for being on the show. And, you know, the key is it wasn't much at first, but again, at first, I asked if there was a check involved. And even though it wasn't a lot of money at the end of the year, you know, they were going to put cameras on the boat, look over our shoulder, right? Well, we were going to go fishing anyway. So at the end of the season, it was like getting a check for a handful of fish we didn't catch. For me and the crew, okay, we're going to get three weeks of bonus pay. It was a no-brainer, right? It's not like we had anything else to do. We were going to go fishing anyway, and they wanted to look over our shoulder. Now... The key to longevity is the key to making money. And every season you do, the deals get a little bit better. You build on the last season. So now, you know, we just got the pickup letter to begin filming season 10, you know, starting this summer. So, you know, that's a decade we've been, been on TV. And I'll admit, and it's funny, it's, you know, there's been a thing going around online with everybody speculating how much we're making and blah, blah, blah. And I just find that odd. But, and I'm not going to go into detail, but, you know, I, I will admit it's been, you know, the greatest opportunity of my lifetime. And it's all built out of the show. And certainly yeah, yeah. I'm doing things that, had it not happened, I can honestly say I wouldn't be at the level I'm at if I was still just commercial fishing only. But again, that industry that I thrived in no longer exists. So um, I actually enjoy fishing. I'm a freshwater fisher. I do go out every now and again, saltwater fishing, but freshwater, freshwater fishing is my passion. I enjoy doing it. Outside of work, what do you do to kick back and unwind? <laughs> you know, that's interesting. You know, for 30 years of my life as a commercial fisherman, I literally, it seemed like, you know, you never had time. You were never ahead enough to relax and unwind. And if you did, if you took a day off or you just didn't, you know what I mean? We Mm -hmm. were never that far enough ahead. It was always, you know, a battle continues, right? So I guess one of the big changes in my life is I've said it in other interviews, you know, and they've gone down that road of what it's meant. And the way I like to describe it is it's meant for me and my family, you know. For the first time in my life, it feels like I'm getting a little bit ahead in the rat race, right? It's a comfortable feeling. And I actually can take a day off once in a while and not stress out over it. The problem is, is I have no idea what to do with myself. (laughs) I think this whole idea of relaxing after so many years of being on the go... Learning how to relax is another thing I'm slowly learning how to do for the days off that I do have. But, you know, look, I spend my life on the water, right? At this point, I've probably spent 
three quarters of my adult life at sea on a boat bouncing around in one way or another. So if I'm not doing that, I'm okay with kicking back on the couch and watching a little TV. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because yeah. I don't no, get to do that on the boat. <laughs> and when you do 10-day trips, you know, you think about it and, you know, it sounds weird, but yeah, okay, we've been fishing for 10 days. We haven't watched TV. I haven't, you know, sat on the couch and I haven't sat in a comfortable chair. So when I get in from that, I'm okay with sitting in my chair in the TV room and kicking back and just chilling. Ironically, you say that it's because, uh, you know, every now and again, I miss being out on the ocean. I mean, we were two months in, two months out. Yeah. And yeah, that's, you know, man. <laughs> and we were, I was talking to my wife the other day about I had a college course that had to do with astronomy. And I said, I wish I could take you out on a boat far away from light and show you the night sky because it's yeah. it's just it's just unbelievable but yeah being on a boat for that long i mean you hate it yeah, but like you that's hardcore you know what i mean it's funny <laughs> they, go, they go on and on the, on the on the show about us being out for a couple of days and that's right <laughs> become a good point you know we knew the you coast gods guys are on that freaking boat for um what was it two months two right? months yeah you, you know yeah. it's funny it's one time and i won't name the cutter right but you know, we, we have a pretty good reputation over the years, you know, because we were always compliant. And again, because of my experience in fisheries management, yeah. I always made sure we were as accommodating as possible because I know some of the guys in the industry were pretty nasty about the situation. I, I think because they just didn't understand the situation, right? So, you know, it's funny, though. It's one time I hear the guys talking, you know, because before they bought it, we were just sitting around eating a box of Cheez-Its, right? And, you know, having a root beer and shit and, you know, hanging <laughs> around a galley table. And yeah. then we got boarded. And, you know, I heard the guys, somebody made a comment, you know, I don't think I was meant to hear, but it's like, oh, man, we've been out of Cheez-Its for like two weeks. <laughs> so, so we hooked them up with a bowl of Cheez-Its. We allowed them to dive in. And we had to swear, though, we wouldn't tell anybody it would, it, it, it uh, you know, because obviously there's all kinds of... Oh, yeah. They're like, oh, no, we can't. We can't. <laughs> Guys, relax a little, right? It's a uh, handful of Cheez-Its. Please share. Well, it was funny because when we'd go down to the Caribbean, that was one of the things when we switched over from, you know, 2% milk or whole milk down to goat's milk. We knew that we were, we were in for the long haul. So, <laughs> right, uh, right, right. Oh, man. <laughs> but you probably heard in prior episodes that I like Chevy trucks. Chevy yeah. is a passion of mine. And that's what I drive. It's my plow truck. It's my home truck. What do you drive for a vehicle? I, I just I, 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 I like Chevys. I get a Chevys. I think nice. the last three trucks I've owned are Chevys, and I pretty much drive them into the ground. Yeah. You know, and again, like for the show, too, it's great opportunity. Some of the guys, you know, are running around now driving their $80,000 pickup trucks, and that's cool. Right, but I get the same truck I've been driving. Look, because of the show, because Chevy's a title sponsor of Wicked Tuna. Yeah, which means they're one of the companies you've seen the commercials. You know the way it works in TV world. The title sponsor is a big thing. It's a big reason why the show happens. So we could get basically the vehicles and employees cost. Right. Mm-hmm. So it was after that first season, the the Chevy that I was driving before that that 
was, I think it was almost 20 years old. It had 275,000 miles on it, right? Yeah. yeah. It finally gave out. And, you know, I found out, you know, because of the show, we could get this discount on Chevy's. So that was the first truck. And that was in, you know, after season one aired. So I think it was just prior to season two, I got that vehicle. And I'm still driving it today. But that was the first time in my life I ever bought you know, a brand new truck. I always bought used, right? Because of the, you know, the way the the depreciation is, the minute yep. you drive it off the lot, you just threw away 35%. Yep. Right? So I always bought a used truck, and, you know, I was happy with that. But because of the opportunity, you know, the way that deal went, I got a, a you know, I had a truck. I think it had 14 miles on on it when I took possession of it which was a milestone in my life. It was the first vehicle we owned in our whole family ever knew. But it was because of the opportunity of the show. I ordered the most basic truck they could make. I even wanted roll-up windows, <laughs> but they couldn't find one that had roll-up windows. They don't make them anymore. So it's funny that you said that your first truck died out, but they don't die out. They rot out in New England. It's you know, yeah, well, exactly. you, go to the inspe- you go to the inspection station and they tell you you can't drive your truck anymore. <laughs> right, right, right. But um, at this point in time, I mean, it's the end of the show, and I, I just wanted to give you a chance to, to say any last words, you know, mention anything that you want to mention your company sure. it doesn't matter yeah yeah look i'll give the company line you know thanks for everybody for watching please tune in sunday night 9 p.m on the national geographic channel and if they have any interest in visiting our website and seeing about the boats or ordering their t-shirts hats or bobbleheads you know that's my retirement account so <laughs> make sure you get two free friends it's uh, angelicafisheries.com. Well, Dave, thank you for being on this. Uh, actually, Captain, thank you for being on this, this show. I still respect uh, my seafaring days. But, yes, thank you. It's been a, a pleasure, and uh, uh, we'll talk. All right. Very good, man. Thank you. It's my pleasure.